AV team, thank you so much for putting up my first slide. It's good to be here this morning. A couple of thoughts and reminders and maybe a couple of plugs up front. Um, number one is um, Ricardo and Vanna send their greetings and their appreciation for your prayers. Their uh, father returned home after having gallbladder surgery and seems to be doing well and will have a few weeks of recovery. Also, as you know, let's be in prayer for our brothers and sisters in the Ukraine. As we prayed for today, for those who are undergoing testing and trials and those in our own church as well. And uh, we want to give greetings to everybody who's visiting and welcoming. And, and Jonathan Park, it's good to see you back again. You must have missed us all so much to come back so soon. Um, anyways, and it's good to see you. It warms our heart. And uh, a couple of plugs too. Next Sunday, there will be Cornerstone. And uh, both in the Sunday morning pulpit as well as Cornerstone afterwards, which you're all invited to. Uh, my beloved brother, Martin Manton from Switzerland, who's coming to the Shepherds Conference, will not only fill the pulpit, but he will also do a Q&A with us on gospel leadership in the home as well as in the church. He has uh, a number of children, and so um, I think you will find that of great encouragement. Well, our subject this morning, we're going to take a little bit of a break from the topic of testing, and, uh, but it is still going to be connected to the sermon this morning. Our focus this morning is on gospel leadership, and uh, one of the reasons we're looking at gospel leadership is it's Christ's calling for this church this year to begin the process of appointing a new elder board and a new deacon board, new leaders in the church, and how do we go about doing that? And uh, the elders and their families spent the last three days um, gathered together on retreat to pray over this and to begin, first of all, with our hearts and our lives. And what we did, just so you know, is we went and we exegeted the passage that's going to come for this coming week in Titus chapter 1, uh, verses 9 through 16. So everything we ask of you, we do ourselves. And we went through that passage to consider for ourselves, first and foremost, are we gospel leaders? Are we, and have we been faithful to the call? And what is God calling us to do? And then to consider how the Lord very clearly rolls out for us, very specifically, how we are to walk through this process of making or affirming or appointing gospel leaders, gospel leaders, looking at who God has chosen for his church to lead his church according to his word. And that's going to be our focus this morning. It'll be in some ways a summary of First Timothy and Titus together, all right, and focusing. And so I'm going to assume you know a little bit of the context since we've been walking the last two years in Lagos together through those on Wednesday evening as far as the context and the details and the occasion, and we're going to get straight to the word and sort of hit it, so to speak, but to consider how the Lord chooses the leaders of his church, and by extension, how does he choose the leaders of our homes? How does he choose the servant helpers of our homes? And how does he call his local church to affirm and appoint the leaders Christ has chosen for his church. Now, why do I keep saying the leaders 
he has chosen. Isn't that something that we do? Well, the testimony of God's word from the very beginning is that it is always the Lord who sovereignly chooses and calls the leaders of his people and his church. It is always the Lord who sovereignly calls and sovereignly chooses and sovereignly commands and sovereignly prepares the leaders he desires for his people. And all we do as a local church is we merely affirm whom God has already set apart. We confess, we come into agreement according to God's word. Yes, these are the men, Lord, whom you have chosen. It's not the senior pastor. Boom, 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 boom. It is the people of God under the leadership of godly men. And it's through them who the Lord uses really to affirm or to bear witness that we bear witness. Yes, indeed, Jesus is the Son of God. Yes, indeed, the gospel is true. Yes, indeed, the church belongs to him and not to the world. Yes, indeed, these are men who are godly and mature who show evidence that the Lord has set them apart for his service in loving and caring for Christ's sheep. It's the Lord who sovereignly chooses and it's the Lord who calls. And this is because the church, according to God's word, 1 Timothy 3.15, is not a dictatorship or a democracy. It is the household of God. And its head and its high priest and its cornerstone, Ephesians 2, is our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, not the Pope or John MacArthur. And its power, its authority, its standard is nothing less than the Word of God, not the rules or preferences or expectations of men. And very specifically, it's the gospel. And its members are believers, children of God who have been saved by grace through faith in Christ. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. It is not a gathering of people who have made a decision or a lifestyle choice to come together. It is not a surrogate family or a fellowship of friends. If that is why you are gathered here in this church, you are gathered for the wrong reasons. Not that there are not friends, not that there's not fellowship, not that there is not community, but ultimately it is the presence of Christ and his lordship and his leadership around which we gather. And the same is true in the marriages and the families and the homes and the relationships in the church. The one who builds the household of God is not your pastor or you. Matthew 16, it is our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ who will build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail. They will fight against, they will oppose, but they will not prevail. And the men he has always used to help shepherd and lead his church are men he has personally chosen and set apart for this task. And as a church, what we need to learn how to do is to consider, okay, how do I identify or know or affirm the men whom he has set apart or who he has chosen for this task? And that brings us to our first point for this morning. 
gospel leaders are chosen and set apart by Christ according to his word. This is why it's important, brothers and sisters, that you learn the word of God. This is why we spent the last two years, last year, 1 Timothy, this year, Titus, and Lord willing, we'll get to 2 Timothy. We're doing this so that you as a congregation can know from God's word his standard for godly leadership. What type of men have been proven to be set apart and chosen by Christ for the task so that when you see it. But if we don't know or we don't appreciate or we don't understand, what's going to fill the blank are our desires, our preferences, or what we think is good. And we will be sorely disappointed. So hopefully that will be motivation as we hit Logos for you to do those exegesis sheets. There is a payoff. We see that this is what Christ shows us from the very beginning. And from all his epistles at the very beginning, Christ points out to his church, he spells it out in great details, what a gospel leader is. It is not someone who is self-appointed. It is not someone who is voted in by a board. A gospel leader is a man who has been chosen, who has been called, who has been commanded by Christ to help care for and to help shepherd and help correct Christ's sheep. And to do so with what? The word of God, according to God's word. So have a look at Titus chapter 1, verse 1. Now, some of this, brothers and sisters, it's a review. But what we're doing this morning, hopefully, is we're drawing a connection directly between what you've studied and what Christ is calling us to do. How do we apply this? So Titus 1.1, like all the epistles, most of the epistles, they start, right? Paul, a slave of God. Some of your translations say a bondservant or a servant. But it's doulos, a slave, a household slave of God. Meaning, Paul has been redeemed. He has been purchased by the blood of Christ. He belongs, his life, entirely not to himself, but Christ. When you look at a man, does his life belong to his work? Does his life belong to his wife or his family? Or in everything, do you see that his life belongs entirely, every aspect to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Paul, a slave of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. The office of the apostle, which we'll read about in a little bit. It's an official office that Paul has been chosen as an ambassador or a spokesman or a representative, an official representative who has the stamp of approval and sanction from his master or king. That the word he comes to bear is not his own word. The agenda he comes to bear is not his own. He has been affirmed by the king. He represents the king. He is an apostle of Jesus Christ. Chosen, called, commanded. Not by his peers, not by his following, but by our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Sent an apostle for what purpose? For the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness. This is about growth in the gospel. He sent to grow the local church in their faith in Jesus Christ, in their knowledge of Jesus Christ. 
all of which accords with a life of godliness, to see them grow. This is his purpose. To grow into what? The image of Christ. To shepherd, this is what it means, brothers and sisters, to shepherd the sheep. At the end of the day, if all you are is fed and taken care of, and you have a great social life and a great family, but you haven't grown and become more like Jesus, a shepherd has failed his job because his responsibility is to get you home. And home, as a Christian, is in the presence of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It's with Christ. That's the end game. That's the point. Verse 2, in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began, and at the proper time manifested in what? Our experience, our feelings, our programs, our plans? No, it's the Word. This is where He has manifested it. How does Christ accomplish this shepherding and growth in His children? Brothers and sisters, there's one way. It's according to His Word. Verse 3b, through the preaching, the kerygma, the proclamation, through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of who? God our Savior. God's command, God's choice, God's redemption, God's Word. Is that clear in a person's life? We see Christ shepherds and leads his church through gospel men he has chosen, through gospel men he has called, through gospel men he has commanded to take careful care of his word, to preach his word in order to care for his sheep. And why does he do this? Because he loves you, brothers and sisters. Because man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And that is true for your relationships. That is true for your families. That is true for your marriage. That is true for intimacy with your husband or your wife. That is true for every aspect of our lives. What is the only thing that grows and protects Christ's sheep? It is Christ himself. It is his word. It is his gospel. And so that's why this is what a gospel leader is all about in every aspect of his life. And brothers and sisters, as you look, and we've asked you to do nominations so that you can have input as the congregation of who should be considered as an elder or deacon, well, this is what you're looking for. And this is not something new in the New Testament or we're making up. From the beginning, these gospel leaders, these men whom God calls the church to affirm and appoint, our responsibility, our responsibility to affirm what is good and to rebuke and resist what is not good. This is not of the Lord. This is not good. This should not be here. And that's true in your walk with the Lord and it's true in your home. Well, Christ has called us to do this from the very beginning, and he shows how he helps his sheep. And we see this all the way back, quite frankly, in Exodus and Genesis, of how the Lord chooses and he points. And what he does in the pattern is he chooses godly men to affirm and choose other godly men. That's how he loves and he cares. So have a look if you would, at Numbers 27, 15. 
I want to show you that this is not something that's just in the New Testament. Where is Moses originally? I'll ask you this as you turn. Where is Moses called and commanded and chosen and commissioned officially? Well, it takes place in Exodus 3 at the burning bush. Right? The Lord comes to Moses. And then in Exodus 18, Jethro advises Moses to appoint elders. So the Lord is working through the man he has chosen to appoint other godly men to help take care of his flock. And then we get to Numbers 27.15. As Moses is getting to the end of his age and he's considering what next and who's going to take care of the people, I can't do it all myself and after I'm gone, who's the next generation? Numbers 27.15, it says, Moses spoke to the Lord. Moses goes to the Lord. Where does Moses go to find out who's going to come in next? Oh, I've got a pretty good idea. I know these guys. I have a relationship with these guys. Moses goes to the Lord. Moses spoke to the Lord, saying, Let the Lord, the God of the spirits of all flesh, appoint a man over the congregation, the kahal, Greek, ecclesia, the church, who shall go out before them and come in before them, who shall lead them out and bring them in, that the congregation of the Lord may not be as sheep that have no shepherd. Essentially, brothers and sisters, the Lord prays. I mean, excuse me, Moses prays, right? He goes to the Lord and he asks, where as a church do we need to start? If we're not praying for godly leaders, then we don't care about godly leaders. And then we will get the, God, the leaders that we deserve. Is it a burden? Do we feel it's that important or do we assume that we know? Judgment in the Old Testament is having the leaders that you want. You want ungodly leaders, you will get ungodly leaders and you will live it out. And we have to say, on the other hand, if we have no desire for the leaders who God chooses, then we deserve what we get. Because all we will do, if there is not that burden for the leaders who God chooses, when God sends us those leaders, we will trample on them. And that's exactly what Israel did to Jesus. And they did to their prophets. They weren't looking for godly leaders. They were happy with the kings of other nations. The good looking, the charismatic, the big leaders like all the other nations had. All the Vladimir Putins of the other nations, right? They want, this is what we want. The Mark Driscolls go down that line, okay? And when Jesus came, they trampled on him. Because he was gentle and he would not break the bruised reed, or put out the smoking flax, right? So the Lord said to Moses, verse 18, Take Joshua the son of Nun, a man in whom is the Spirit, and lay your hand on him. Make him stand before Eleazar, the priest, and all the congregation, and you shall commission him in their sight. You shall invest him with some of your authority, that's the authority God had given Moses, that all the congregation of the people of Israel may obey. And he shall stand before Eleazar, the priest, who shall inquire for him by the judgment of the Urim before the Lord 
At his word they shall go out, and at his word they shall come in, both he and all the people of Israel, with him, the whole congregation. Verse 22, and Moses did as the Lord commanded him. So even in the Old Testament with Moses, Moses is following God's instructions of how to affirm the man who the Lord has chosen, Joshua the son of Nun. Well, let's jump to the New Testament. Have a look at Luke 6, verse 12. Luke 6, verse 12. This is a little bit of a topical sermon, so you're going to be jumping from place to place. Luke 6, verse 12. In these days, he, and that's Jesus, went out to the mountain to pray. And all night he continued in prayer to God. Verse 13, and when day came, he called his disciples and he chose from them twelve whom he named apostles. How did Jesus go about choosing the twelve apostles? Well, first he took from his disciples, men who had repented and placed their faith in him and had left everything and were following him. And from that community, what did Jesus do? Oh my goodness, Jesus prayed. Our Lord and Savior, true God, true man, the eternal Son of God, equal with God, prays to God the Father all night. And then after, he selects 12, one of whom is Judas, who he knows will betray him, but will still play a role. What men mean for evil, God means for good. And we see that the lordship of the church is Christ. He fulfills the will of the Father. He does so by the Spirit. And he does so according to the word. And he chooses. And so the first leadership of the church, the apostles, are called and chosen by our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And when you get to Acts 9, when the apostle Paul is made an apostle... He too is chosen and called by our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and then affirmed in the local church through Ananias. What we do, brothers and sisters, is we affirm and we bear witness to the gospel work God has done to raise up godly leaders. And then we come back to Titus and we see that this is exactly what the Apostle Paul is doing with Titus. Titus, have a look at chapter 1, verse 4 and 5, dropping down. He writes, to Titus, this is Paul the Apostle, my true child in a common faith. Designating who Titus is. Titus is genuinely saved. He is the Apostle Paul's child, even though he's a Gentile and the Apostle Paul is a Jew, because Christ has purchased them and drawn them near. This is why I left you in Crete so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. The implication, Paul has already commanded and given this direction to Titus. And so we see this scriptural pattern. The Lord appoints the Apostle Paul to become an apostle. And then the Apostle Paul, in a turn, appoints Titus and Timothy to be senior pastors or shepherds, one in Ephesus and one in Crete. And then the Apostle Paul, 
Christ through him, this official letter, by the power of the Holy Spirit and the authority of Christ, acting as Christ's mouthpiece and representative, he calls and he directs Titus and Timothy to appoint elders. These are men who have been chosen by the command of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And it's in this way Christ uses the godly leaders he has chosen to identify and appoint more godly leaders whom he has chosen. And each step of the way, the men who are called to lead are always to be the men whom Christ has set apart to shepherd his people. Well, how do we know who Christ has set apart? We're not Moses. We don't get to go to the top of Mount Sinai. We don't get to see the burning bush. We live in the church age or church era with Scripture where from beginning to end, God's Word is complete. There does not need to be further revelation. And as we come to the rest of Titus 1 and we come to 1 Timothy 3, well, we see the reason we don't need more revelation is because our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, through His Word, has laid out very specifically everything we need to identify whom he has chosen and whom he has set apart. And as you look at 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1, and you look at the summary and list of those characteristics that we see as you go through them, what you see is essentially a description of men who look like Jesus. He's pointing out maturity in Christ. That's what this whole list of characteristics or attributes are. They're men who have been proven and who have been tested and who demonstrate that they faithfully represent Christ, not themselves and not the world. And that brings us to our second point for this morning. Gospel leaders must faithfully represent Christ, not themselves and not the world. What do you see in the men who lead your discipleship groups? What do you see in the men who you're interested in dating? What do you see in the men who serve? Do they represent Christ or do they represent something else? The cars they drive, the clothes they wear, the things they do. What does it represent at the end of the day? And let's look at ourselves. Well, here in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1, as you read through the rest of the section, he shows you every aspect of the lives of these men who are to be appointed demonstrate that in their home life, in their work, in every aspect of their lives, what is represented is the sweetness and the beauty and the grace and the glory of the gospel and our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. This is who the Apostle Paul instructs both Titus and Timothy to identify, to affirm, and to appoint as elders and deacons. In 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1, it's men who have proven to be faithful to Christ. Why? Because according to God's word, Christ loves his sheep by giving them shepherds who are like him. 
He doesn't want you to have a counterfeit love. He doesn't want you to have second best. He came to give you the very best, his very own life that he gave on the cross for you, for your sins. And his desire and his choice are men who possess that very same love and that very same life. And they're able to give it to those who are in his household. And so we see this in Titus 1.5, reading down, when he says, This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. And how does he direct him? What is the skill set? What is the education? What is the experience? What is the personality? What is the giftedness? Verse 6, if anyone is present, not getting there, is present progressive, ongoing, not once on a Sunday or once on a Lagos meeting, consistently, ongoing, never-ending, the characteristic of their life, if anyone is above reproach. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be necessity, divine necessity, must be above reproach. We see the same thing in 1 Timothy 3.2. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach. And the Apostle Paul in these letters repeats that word, must be, must be, must be, must be. Non-negotiable, brothers and sisters. Non-negotiable. What does it mean to be above reproach? This is something that is sorely, sorely misunderstood. We tend to say, well, it's a good guy. It's someone who's not a bad person, above reproach, that there, there can be no charge or condemnation brought against them, right? Everybody thinks well of this person. No one can say anything bad about this person. But let me ask you, how many people said bad things about Jesus? A lot. How many people still say bad things about Jesus? A lot. This word, anegkletos, it's a lot more than just being a good person or a good guy. That's not what they're saying or someone who no one says anything bad about. And invariably in the elder process and the deacon process, there will be many who say this person's affirmed and some people will say, I had a bad encounter with this person. This person shouldn't be considered. They were not kind to me. And the leadership of the church and the church, we're going to have to walk through this and say, okay, is above reproach means that 100% unanimous, nobody says anything bad about this person. Well, by that criteria, the Apostle Paul would have never been anywhere. And clearly, as you read Titus and Timothy, but especially Timothy, Timothy would have been booted out because there were a lot of false teachers in the church saying bad things about Timothy. Don't follow him. He's not good. He's not godly. Look at us. Well, this word, anekletos, which comes from the verb kaleo, which means to call. It means, or the implication here, it's one word. The above reproach in Greek, it's one word. It means that someone has not been charged or called out to be contrary to their calling. 
What are we talking about here? That there is not a charge that is proven that this person is contrary to the calling of Christ, the command of Christ, and the character of Christ. He is a representative of Christ. And as such, you can say any number of things about them, but what you cannot say or what cannot be proven, his character, his calling, is not contrary to the calling that Christ has given. It's the standard of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Well, he doesn't have a great personality, or well, he, he said an unkind word to me, or he offended me, those things. But we come in and say, okay, but was it contrary to this person's as a calling as a representative of Christ? Was he called to correct you? Was he called to say that maybe some of your paths or things that you were doing are not pleasing to the Lord and that's what you're offended about? Well, then we're going to look at that and say, yes, you might have been offended, but this is not contrary to the character of Christ. Okay, so Christ is really the standard. And what they're talking about, about being above reproach, is the community can say any number of things about a person, what they don't like, but they can't say, oh, this is the gospel, and his behavior or his actions or the direction of his life is contrary to the direction of Christ and the gospel. And what is this calling that no charges can be brought against? It's the calling of an overseer, and very specifically, what is an overseer? Verse 7, for an overseer as God's steward. Now, this term overseer in the Greek is episkopos, from which you get the word many people refer to, they translate it as a bishop. And you think of the Catholic Church or the Anglican Church and a system of bishops, of overseers, men who wear weird clothing and funky hats and show up to elaborate events, okay? But that's not what episkopos is. Epi is to be over, skopos for the eyes or seeing, or to examine closely. So it's someone who looks closely. And so an episkopos, a steward in the household of God, it is the household equivalent of the shepherd. The shepherd is the pastor. He's outdoors. He's in the green area. The episkopos is in the house, the household. But he's doing the same job. He is, quite literally, a watchman. Remember that song about the watchman? I will wait, I will wait, right? And the song that we sing, like the watchman, that we're watching and waiting for the master to return home. Our eyes are on the horizon, and we're watching to protect the house against the enemies of God. And we see this idea of the episkopos, the overseer, He's the household servant who watches over, who cares for God's household, who represents not himself or his own interests. It's not of the world. It's not self-serving. It's not an ambition about promotion or carrying responsibility. It's a love for his master where he represents and serves not himself but his Lord in caring for everything in the household of the Lord as being more important than himself. Don't touch these things. They belong to my master. When he comes back, I want them in as good a shape or even more beautiful than when he left. An overseer, one who is above reproach, is someone 
who no charge can be brought against them that they were serving themselves or the interests of the world, but instead they have faithfully shown that their first love is Christ, and because their first love is Christ, their first love is the care of Christ's sheep, even if it means their own suffering, even if it means they need to correct, because that is the way Christ loves his sheep. They were not negligent in that way. And so at the end, Christ's sheep are cared for even by Christ himself. And as you go to verse 6b through 9, and also 1 Timothy chapter 3, the Apostle Paul gives us the details of what a good watchman is, his characteristics. And essentially, this is about maturity. Maturity in Christ. The good steward or overseer must be the husband of one wife. And his children are believers or they are faithful. Pistis. And they are not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer as God's steward must be above reproach. So when it says must be, everything that follows is led by that leading verb. Must be. All of these things are insistence. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain. Summarize, rulers of this world, self-serving, taking care of themselves. This is what we're seeing with Vladimir Putin, right? Unbridled, unchecked violence to serve himself and his interests and his power. But sadly, we see that frequently, brothers and sisters in the church as well. But he must be hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. Like Jesus. It's not about myself. I'm going to give up my desires. I'm going to give up what my wants are. I'm going to give up my bowl of ice cream. The elders saw me eat ice cream every night that we were away. Okay, I'm going to give those things up. Self-discipline. Why? Because it's not about me it's all about Christ and his sheep. And that's what Christ demonstrated on the cross. He must, divine necessity, hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught. 1 Timothy 3.8. This is the same for deacons, not just the elders. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, hanging on to it tightly, never letting it go for what purpose? so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. And that phrase, brothers and sisters, as it comes at the end, is the culmination of this passage of all those characteristics of Christ lead up to and upon which the teaching in sound doctrine that is backed up by a godly life and the correction in sound doctrine that is backed up by a godly life it all comes to a head in the gospel of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And this is not only for elders to hold fast, it's also for deacons, though the elders are the ones who teach and perhaps most visibly rebuke. And together with 1 Timothy 3, this summation gives three specific ways the apostle points out Gospel leaders must faithfully represent Christ. 
First, they need to faithfully represent Christ by faithfully representing His new direction and desire. His new direction and desire. They're men who have put off the direction and desires of this world and the direction of their life and the desires are those of Christ. So in 1 Timothy 3.1, when Paul says, The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Now, this is grossly misunderstood. People look at this and say, okay, the criteria to be an elder or a deacon is that you have to have an ambition for it. And we tend to view it through the lens of the world. Ambition for a position of power. Ambition for a position of responsibility. An ambition to lead. Well, I don't desire to be a leader. Well, guess what? Moses didn't desire to be a leader. I and Jeremiah didn't desire to be a leader. And I don't think the disciples, when they first repented and followed after Jesus, were looking to be leaders. They were looking to be with Christ. And as you look at the language aspires, that word aspires, the actual Greek word refers to reaching for or striving for something. It's referring to the direction of a person's life. Where are you going? What are you pursuing? What's the path that you are running down? Is the path that you're running down, is Christ at the end of it? Is that the direction of your life? Or is it your career? Or is it your family? Or is it some other ambition or direction of your life. What is the direction of a person's life? Well, when someone gets saved, Christ gives them a new desire and a new direction. And that new desire is for Christ. It's a love for Him and it's a love for His people. And so the Apostle Paul, as he's saying this, is, hey, this person who desires to be a shepherd, who desire, it's a person who the direction of their life is to love the same things that Jesus does. Who does Jesus love? He loves his sheep. He gave his life for them. That's the direction of this person's life. And when it says he desires a noble task, the idea of desire is a strong desire, and that term, a noble task, is literally a good work. Because Christ gives us a new work to do. Not to serve ourselves, but to care for his sheep. And so we see that someone who faithfully represents Christ faithfully represents the desires of Christ and the direction of Christ. And what does Christ desire for you? 1 Thessalonians 4, this is God's will for you. Your sanctification. Your sanctification, that you would be holy and wholly set apart for the Lord. That you abstain from sexual immorality, men and women wholeheartedly given over to the desires of the Lord, not the desires of the flesh. This is the pattern and direction of someone who is on their way to becoming a gospel leader. Gospel leaders must faithfully represent Christ's direction and desire. Secondly, gospel leaders must faithfully represent Christ's character and witness. Christ's character and witness. They possess lives that bear witness to the character of Christ. That's why he must be above reproach in the home. 
Nobody can come and say, oh, are your kids perfect? No, it's not about that. Oh, are you faithful to the gospel in how you care for your wife and how you care for your children? So the leader who is never at home, never shepherding his wife, never shepherding his children, but is in the pulpit, is preaching and has an amazing following. Wow, yeah. Look how fruitful his ministry is. Look at how many people come to the church. Look at how well he preaches, but he's never at home. That's not like Jesus. A character and a witness that is like Christ. It's a demonstration that he has a new life and a new testimony. He used to be in the office, A, B, C, D, and E. He used to. I think of one of my men I'd like to consider my mentor who was kind to me. He was the chief of staff of the Department of Infectious Disease and Pediatrics at a famous, famous hospital, pediatric hospital in Toronto, the hospital for sick children. And allegedly when he would walk through, he helped develop some of the vaccines that we use today. He would walk around in his old time. He had this gold Piaget watch. Why did he have this gold Piaget watch? Because there was a family whose child was dying and he was able to provide serum that he'd gotten from horses. And they said, just give us anything. And he tested it on the child because they insisted. And the child who had meningitis was saved from this vaccine. So the wealthy family gave him this gold watch. He walked around and the testimony of his life. He was a man who had saved lives. But allegedly, the nurses and the house staff would be in fear and trembling every time he walked down because his expectation in medicine was excellent. And apparently he could curse like a sailor, was how I was told. And then this man got saved as an adult after success in the world. And the testimony was that there was this transformation. There's a different man. How he spoke, what he said, what he was like. Same intense, same intense temperament, same intense character, but now turned 180 degrees, not cutting people down with a foul mouth, but instead a sincere passion and heart for the gospel and for the Lord. Transformed, a new witness, a new life representing Christ, the Savior, would come in and change this person from top to bottom. And so this is what's being referred to in 1 Timothy 3.7 when it says, Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace into a snare of the devil. He must be well thought of by outsiders. This is not that everybody's your friend. I can throw a party and everybody can be my friend. I can hand out iPads, everybody can be my friend. That idea, he must be well thought of, the actual language is martyrion, from which we get the word martyr, witness of the gospel. It's the idea when people see this person, they say, wow, this person is different. They are like Christ. They are a witness that Christ has risen from the grave. He is not dead. He is alive because very clearly this is a work of God and not of man. That's what it means. Third, final way in this summation of Paul's characteristics. A gospel leader must represent a new commitment and care. A new commitment and care. 
the commitment and care of Christ. This must be demonstrated, enduring over time, unwavering, not moving from one position to the next, but day in, day out, the overarching trajectory of their life is their commitment remains the same. A commitment to what? Christ and the gospel. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also rebuke those who contradict it. Brothers and sisters, this is as true for the deacons as it is for the elders, perhaps not in the formal teaching capacity, but that commitment to the gospel, sound doctrine in accord with godliness. This is not just seminary Bible knowledge. This is a commitment where you are willing to suffer and die for the gospel. You are willing to divide for the gospel. And so we think of the example of this is in Acts 8, Acts 7, Acts 6. Stephen is appointed as the prototype of the deacons. It's not an elder, not an apostle. And what ends up happening over the next two chapters is not only does he care well for Greek widows who are being neglected in the church, and not only does he write the care for the least among them, but then we see right after this man whose witness is a devotion to the love of Christ and the love of Christ's people, caring for the sheep as Christ cares for his sheep. Guess what? When they come after him because he's teaching in the temple... He is able to stand and present a sermon where he testifies to the truth of the gospel and the error of the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the experts in Bible knowledge. And so the experts can come and say, no, 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 no. And he's able to stand and say, look, let's go through the scriptures together. You are wrong. Christ is greater than the temple. You have trampled on him. He is greater than Moses. The Lord has come. And you have crucified him. And what do they do? They crucify, they, they stone him. And Paul's hanging on to the coats of the people who is there. It's not just about being a deacon, doing a good job, though that is wonderful. And we need to do a good job as unto the Lord. It is all part of a commitment to the sound doctrine of the gospel. And that means gospel leaders are going to be continually growing and going deeper into the doctrines of Christ and the gospel. There is no place for complacency. And so Paul is showing us, who do we identify? Who do we set apart? Who do we look for? It's maturity in Christ, brothers and sisters. Plain and simple. Maturity in Christ. So then the question comes, well, listen, who's going to be an elder and who's going to be a deacon if this is the criteria and the quality? Well, Jesus explains to the disciples, with men these things are impossible. But with God, all things are possible. And that's, brothers and sisters, why we need to be praying to the Lord together for godly leaders and for the godly leaders we have. Sisters, this is why you need to be praying for a godly leader in the home. Because it's a miracle of God. And these are all the criteria that you need to be considering. 
But men, this is why if you're single, you need to be praying for a godly servant helper who esteems these things so that she can pray for you that you will walk in them and she can support you when suffering comes or times are difficult and you are called to stand for Christ and not the world, even if it's in the church. Husbands and wives, this is why you need to pray for one another. Because this can only come from the Lord. And this brings us to our final point for this morning. Gospel leaders are made, they are gifted, and they are proven not by men, but by Christ and the gospel. Gospel leaders are made, they are gifted, and they are proven not by men or ourselves, but by Christ and the gospel. And this is the good news. It's not pie in the sky, brothers and sisters, because Christ will do it. He has promised to do it, and he does do it. And he's able to do it. Now, as we think of leadership, typically our standards, we think and we fall back on the world. We look at what are the things that we typically use. We use this idea of we want giftedness, we want experience, we want success. That's what we look for in resumes. Is this person gifted for the job? Do they have a special? Do they have the experience? Were they trained? Did they demonstrate success? But let's have a look for a minute at who God chose. He chose Moses, who was a foster child in the Egyptian royal family. He chose Moses, who was a murderer. Then he went on to choose David, who was the youngest sibling and was a child and a shepherd, or a young man and a shepherd. And then who did Jesus choose? He chose fishermen from Galilee, who were considered to be uneducated low men, looked down upon by everybody in Israel. He chose a tax collector named Matthew or Levi, and tax collectors were considered to be sinners, and they were barred from the synagogue and the temple. He chose zealots, and he chose the Apostle Paul, who, though he was a Pharisee, was a murderer or self-proclaimed blasphemer as he looked back at himself. And someone who was an abusive person. But he didn't keep them there. Brothers and sisters, the gospel is what God has done to save sinners. By the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ according to God's word. And part of that salvation is remaking us into the image of Christ. It's not enough to say you believe in Jesus. It's not. If Jesus has truly saved you, then he is truly changing you. And you are not staying the same. And in Christ's kingdom, brothers and sisters, there are no second-class citizens. We are not the Catholic Church or the Anglican Church. There is no priesthood. There is no section of here are the stars and here are the fans and you get to watch while the stars play. No. It's not in God's word. It begins with Jesus saying in Matthew 4, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That's where Jesus' leadership program starts. And then he goes on in Matthew 4.19 and it says, And he said to them, Follow me and I will make you fishers of men. 
And so we look in our leadership for men who have been made by Christ, not made by themselves or their natural talents or abilities. Gospel leaders are men who Christ has remade in his image. And because of this, they put off the gifts of the world. They put off the desires of the world. They put off the practices of the world. And they are mature and totally invested in the gifts of Christ. And they are totally invested in the direction of Christ and the love of Christ and the task of Christ, which is to love and care for his church and to see them grow. And this is why the Apostle Paul says to Titus in Titus 3.3, He says to Titus, Titus, for we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and love and kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our 